The following episode of Rabbit Hole is brought to you by Onfim. Onfim was a young boy who lived in Novgorod in present-day Russia in the 13th century, sometime around 1220 or 1260. He left his notes and homework exercises scratched in soft birch bark, which was preserved in the clay soil of Novgorod. Onfim, who was most likely six or seven at the time, wrote in the old Novgorodian dialect of Old East Slavic. Onfim left 17 known birchbark items. The writings are clearly learning exercises. Onfim practiced by writing out the alphabet, repeating syllables, and writing psalms. Besides letters and syllables, Onfim's illustrations include pictures of knights, horses, arrows, and slain enemies. One of the drawings features a knight on a horse stabbing someone on the ground with a lance, with scholars speculating that Onfim pictured himself as the knight. Another image, a portrait of himself disguised as a fantastic animal, contains a picture of a beast with a long neck, pointy ears, and a curly tail. The beast either has an arrow with feathers in its mouth or is spewing fire. One of the accompanying texts says, I am a wild beast. If you'd like to join Onfim in supporting Rabbit Hole, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash rabbitholepodcast. Hello, listeners. We are back deep down in the rabbit hole. I am here with fellow detective Sparky Abraham. My name is Detective Pete Davis. Who have you brought into the rabbit hole tonight, Sparky, to help us solve the case of Is School Good? Pete, I'm so confused. Are we detectives or are we rabbits? Or are we rabbit detectives? Yeah, well, that's, what, how does you know, this work? This is, we're building the canon. I'm doing some world building here, Sparky. <laughs> I, I can tell. I'm just we're trying to, to solve a mystery. Hava, uh, we're so glad to have you here. Sparky's going to formally introduce you, but since okay, you've had to okay, sit through fine. this, what we try to do, and listeners who are somehow joining halfway through our second series just on this episode, what we try to do is we try to solve questions in internecine fights in our side of the ideological spectrum. So things that create strange bedfellows and interesting cleavages. So um, we explored Is MMT Real? And now we are exploring is school good? Um, we've had people on who have said, um, you know, school is good. We've had people, the last person we had on literally said, like, shut down all the schools. They're all bad. There's no hope. <laughs> yes. And so, Sparky, who have you brought here today? Uh, who is Hava? I'm so, so excited for this, Pete. Today we are joined by Hava de Cordova. Hava is the co-host of the Hi, How Are You podcast, which is the world's first queer Talmud podcast. And honestly, it's like one of my favorite podcasts. It uh, goes instantly to the top of my feed every time it comes out. I am so genuinely excited and a little bit starstruck. Welcome, Hava. (laughs) Wow, I'm honored to be on the show. The first question that occurs to me is in this situation, am I a fellow detective or am I the evidence? And that's something I think you need to think about in your world building. That will be one of the questions we have to figure out today. It's like, are we calling in, you know, the feds to figure this out? Like, uh, yeah, or 
are you someone we're interviewing like as if you could be a suspect or something? Dude, or, right. There's so many options. There's like, yeah, there's like the backup detective. There's the expert witness. There's the suspect, yeah. the, the victim. Well, I hope I'm I don't not know. an expert witness. Expert yeah. testimony is notoriously unreliable. So please, not that can't be my role. I, I'm going to go with, I, I think, you know, part of the, part of the premise here of the Is School Good podcast uh, series is to discover whether maybe we are all victims. Or okay. all perpetrators. Or all Great. perpetrators. <laughs> right. right. So Hava, I'm, I'm like, I'm so stoked to have you here. And I in particular wanted to have you here because, you know, the the premise of the series is, is school good. And as you might expect, we've been mostly focused on school kind of as it exists as an institution in the United States right now. But of course, we kind of like immediately get into these questions that extend far beyond our current historical context and our current shape of institutions. And so what you do on your podcast is, I think, in exploring Talmud, and I think you kind of do this in your life outside of the podcast, too, which I assume exists. Yes, <laughs> um, yes, I do. My whole life is Talmud, basically. Yeah. Well, and like Talmud, you know, I, I think like it would be it would be great to sort of have just like a some a very basic introduction on what Talmud is, but like, what is pedagogy within within Talmud? Like, what do you do and how does kind of the concept of education and pedagogy play into it here? Great, great question. So Talmud, in the briefest statement possible, is an enormous body of rabbinical literature, li literature written by Jewish rabbis who lived anywhere between 0 CE and 300, 600 CE. So just a short blip of time. Talmud is this enormous sprawling body of legal precedents, arguments, stories, myths, just every subject you could possibly imagine crammed into one body of literature. And I would say the thing, the first thing to know about Talmudic pedagogy and the thing that distinguishes it so much from other pedagogy is that Talmud always happens in what we call the chevruta relationship. So a chevruta is a partner who you study with. And the rabbis of the Talmud say that if you're studying alone, that doesn't even really count as studying Talmud. So everything happens in a relational context, which I really think sets Talmudic learning apart because it's not about acquisition of facts by the self, but rather about the changes both in knowledge and character that we're able to affect in the other. So that's just like a the sprinkle of the beginning of Talmud. Continuing a emergent organic theme of the series in which Protestants are disappointed because <laughs> <laughs> which I'm referring to the fact that, you know, the the great Catholic Protestant divide is can you read the Bible alone, basically? And so that's a very interesting idea that the Talmud is not something you kind of read alone. Could you tell us more about that? So that, that how does that work in practice? You know, do you do you find a rabbi to learn and teach it with? What is what is the way that that works in, in Talmudic life? Right. So it's worked a lot of different ways in a lot of different historical contexts. In our time, the majority of Talmud education is happening in Orthodox communities in which you know, from from birth to adulthood, you will have already been being assigned chevrutas the whole time. And that kind of Talmudic pedagogy is, I won't talk about it very much because it's very alien to me. That is not the world that I'm a part of. But in progressive, outside progressive, not politically, but just meaning non-Orthodox, 
in progressive Talmud education, usually you have a teacher who assigns you a chevruta based on a shared Hebrew level, a shared understanding of the language that the text is in. You get together, you first start always by reviewing whatever text it is you studied before. They say in, in the Talmud, the person who's read something 99 times is not even similar to one who has read it 100 times. So review is a really central concept. You review and then you translate, study, and comprehend new material, and then you come together in a lecture format to hear from the teacher their take on the text. How much text is there? Just like the entire Talmud? Yeah. There are 2,117 double-sided pages of Hebrew and Aramaic text. It takes about seven and a half years to read a page a day. I hear there's a, like a, a tradition to read a page a day, right? Yes, there's a tradition called Daf Yomi, which was started, uh, I want to say mid-century, where people study a page a day, and that is this become this very universal practice. So everyone is sort of studying the same page all at the same time. It's this really great unifying cycle that's been created. But those pages are incredibly dense. Nothing like a, a page of English text, you know, to... Daf Yomi is an, an incredibly fast way to study the Talmud. You're really just like zipping through material. So if you think the fastest pace I can imagine setting takes seven and a half years to get through the whole thing, that maybe gives you some idea of how much material there really is. Yeah. So to what extent, if if you know, I mean, either currently in particular in Orthodox communities or historically, like, is Talmud something that happens over and above some other kind of institutional education or does Talmud serve as kind of the main analog, I guess, maybe for whatever uh, we call institutional education or school now? Right. So I can say that this is a, a very currently a hotly debated topic, especially in, in heavily orthodox places like New York City. So Talmud is the, I would say, the central part of the education of an orthodox man from birth to adulthood. And other things are sort of supplementary or ancillary to that. And there's a lot of political back and forth in places like New York about the state's power to regulate what religious schools in the Orthodox communities have to teach their children, both, both boys and girls, because girls receive a really minimal education compared to Orthodox boys. So yeah, I think the answer to your question is that Talmud is central and everything else is sort of around it and the less of it, the better. Mm -hmm. Can you also just tell us a little bit briefly, particularly because we ask everybody, but also, you know, what is your kind of educational history and how did you come to the, you know, is this, did you grow up in this or did you come to it separately? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. I have a very uh, abnormal educational history for someone in this field. So from just a sort of vanilla educational standpoint, my education is basically just went through high school, tried to go to college three times, dropped out three times. So just didn't, didn't ever make it farther than that. Yeah, why? What happened? Let's see. Well, the first time I had just recently been kicked out of my house when I came out of the closet to my family. And so I just wasn't ready to like be alone at college, trying to like both figure out how to live as an alone adult and also do college. The next two times, I just couldn't deal with getting through the basics of education, the freshman Englishes 
you know, the maths, the things that are not sort of to my taste. I just couldn't hang. I think if I could uh, somehow teleport directly to grad school today, I would probably go back to grad school because I think I would have a much more focused experience. But I've just never been able to push through those first two years of an undergraduate Hmm. degree. Do you think that it has any, like, is it not interesting? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is the problem. (laughs) I mean, I... I have a an incredible have always had since childhood an incredibly difficult time focusing on anything that isn't interesting to me. And so, you know, it's it's like hiking up a mountain to get through that kind of coursework for me and I just never could could quite make it. So how do you go from kind of normal high school Kanye college dropout to Talmud scholar and and host of co-host of the world's first queer Talmud podcast? Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey. So I actually didn't grow up even knowing that I was Jewish. I grew up in an evangelical Christian household. And it turns out that my family is of Jewish descent, which I was told by my great-grandmother when I was 13. So that was a big revelation. And I sort of asked my parents about it. And they were like, don't speak of this ever again. And so I didn't for many years. And then Later, as an adult, after I'd gotten kicked out of the house, after I had been sort of, you know, anathematized by that community, I thought, you know, there were some things that were really good about growing up with family and with religion. If only there was some way I could, like, recapture those experiences in a way that wouldn't be able to reject me. And then I was like, oh, like, Judaism, like, can't reject me because I'm, like, a Jew by birth. So, like, I should explore that. And so I started exploring Judaism and sort of getting further and further into it along the years until eventually I went to something called Queer Talmud Camp, which is run by this organization called Sfara that sort of pioneered the queer Talmud approach. And ever after, I became completely obsessed with Talmud and just spent the years and years in between studying. And my teaching really got kicked off at the start of the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, a lot of people were just, who had been in that queer Talmud community were looking for programming. And I had been sort of raring to teach at that time after my years of study. And at the same time, my co-host, Michael, just randomly suggested we start a podcast together. So that's when my life became sort of subsumed by Talmud. So I would say the majority of my Talmudic and and Jewish education in general has been autodidactic. And we'd love to, you know, we're we're interested in the content and we're going to get into a lot of questions about the content of the Talmud, but we're kind of the center of this series is trying to explore pedagogical styles. And as you were autodidactic, as you went to this queer Talmud camp, as you got deeper and deeper into it, any reflections on what aspects of the pedagogical technique that got you more excited and more engaged than compared to the college pedagogy that was not doing it for you? Sure. I think something very powerful about the pedagogy that's prevalent in the sort of queer Talmud movement is that it's really focused on learner empowerment. So in the world of queer Talmud, you only need to learn your Hebrew letters, your Olive Bet, and then you're sent off with a chevruta and with a couple dictionaries and given the opportunity to sort of struggle with the text yourself. And the combination of 
like an appropriate level of sort of distant teacher support, but also setting high expectations and letting us sort of like throw ourselves against them with a lot of freedom to determine our own learning paths when dealing with a text. I think that's what really drew me in and helped me feel like free to learn in the way that worked for me, which obviously is sort of the antithesis of, of uh, everything about high school and early college education. What's interesting about it is, you know, we're trying to find this kind of, I don't know if it's a middle ground or a third way, but those have baggage to them, which is, you know, there's, you know, this kind of unschooling of the mind for people who don't really know it, who think, you know, it's like, it's just like hippie stuff. It's like, you can do whatever you want. If you become uninterested, just become uninterested. If you run into a roadblock, go work on something else that's more fun in the immediate term. So, you know, we don't want that. But we also don't want like sitting in rows in school being forced to learn something that is not inspiring at all. And what it's interesting about hearing from you on this is that it's this mix of like you, you even use the phrase free to learn, which was the title of this um, unschooling book that we interviewed of the last person who was really against institutional schooling. But it's mixed with we are always going to return to this text and we have expectations that the reason you're here is you want to no matter how hard it is, go deeper and deeper into the specific thing. Any reflections on that balance? Yeah, I mean, I think part of what makes the the queer Talmud approach work is that there's a really strong structure to support that freedom, which I think is sort of, uh, to me, the, the important ingredients in any learning environment or any organizational environment are like strong structure and boundaries, which in turn support like, strong empowerment and autonomy and those two pieces have to work together for learning or anything else to get accomplished in my opinion so i think that that fusion is what makes it work and talmud is uniquely suited to that fusion because it is has a very structured traditional pedagogy associated with it and so it was sort of ripe to have the autonomy piece injected into that pedagogy i'm really kind of interested in what you were saying about, you know, being turned loose to struggle with the text with like just this very basic, because, you know, one of the things that's come up in, you know, in terms of the different values of education or theories of education or whatever, and you kind of referenced earlier, the sort of knowledge banking idea, right? Where like you're there to just kind of gather the facts or or whatever. Mm -hmm. The sort of learning science has come up before, like how do people kind of learn things best? And it really strikes me that that is very much not the approach that you would take if you wanted to like most efficient, you know, you've got someone who like <laughs> understands the text and knows the words and they're like, no, no, we're not, I'm not going to, you you go try. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's very, it's very clearly and, and very undeniably about the process rather than necessarily sort of like the banking of facts or something. Right. Right. And, and to be clear, it doesn't work for everyone. I have had several students who, after trying to learn this way for a little while, have sort of come to me and said, like, I don't like this. Like you have the answer. Like, you know what the words mean. Just tell me what the words mean. Like, that's the way I want to learn. And so for some people, like the, the autonomy slider is, is too high for them. And so it doesn't work for everyone, but it is, a happy medium. One of the interviews that we did before that I think has a lot of resonance here was with Dan Walden, who is a classicist. 
and one of the things I listened to in preparation for being on this episode he was really like he wanted to talk about and we did talk about although not as long as I would have hoped like the idea of a canon right like what use does the canon serve what value does it have and 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 you know what problems does it come with Talmud seems like like the ultimate canon right it's like everybody spends all of your time reading like the exact same stuff and it seems like it seems like really paradigmatically the canon too in that it's it's so completely wrapped up in sort of broader life and culture right and i wonder if you can if like you can talk about that and whether there's any even possible comparison to what we think of as canons in in our education yeah i mean i think i think in Jewish education, we're largely saved from the question of the canon because we have recourse to the religious to just mm-hmm. say, like, this is the canon, deal with it, everybody, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a fun and expedient way to deal with that question. But it has, I think, something that a lot of people have been sort of pushing to explore in the more progressive edges of the Talmud world are, like, what sort of other sources we can bring in as part of our Talmud study. Because part of Talmud study, if you look at a page of Talmud, only, I would say, about 50% max of that page is actually Talmud, precisely. Mm -hmm. The other 50% is commentaries around the edges that are from people ranging, you know, over hundreds of years who have been commenting on this text. And so there's this idea of sort of these historical figures brought in their insights as we study Talmud, we're sort of taking, sitting in their seats and bringing in our own insights. And so the question of canonicity comes up in its own way when in Talmud education spaces, we start to ask ourselves like, how far back does a person have to go to be included as a valid commentary? You know, can I bring a quote by Judith Butler like Mm -hmm. into my Talmud paper? You know, stuff like that. So it's it's definitely a question. Yeah, why, why you know, the small d Democrat in me says, though I have respect for kind of the edges of democracy eventually hit up against kind of the existential nature of religion, but the voice of the small d Democrat in me says, how can you close a commentary on how we should live in a certain random year? So what is the answer to that that people give and how do you feel about that answer? Yeah, I think there are many ways to answer that question and and there's sort of two primary viewpoints. One which we would associate with the the orthodox world we would call Yeridat HaDorot, meaning the descent of the generations. Basically every, in that worldview, every step that we get away from the biblical characters, we become just sort of naturally less spiritually adept and advanced people. And so because of that, people who came after can never contradict what came before. And so our task is to sort of find a way to make that all work without contradicting anything that came before us. The other point of view is the opposite and has its own expression in the Talmud. And That point of view takes the sort of, doesn't have a pithy phrase to sum it up, unfortunately, sort of takes the viewpoint that each generation is the one that knows best how to apply the law to their circumstances. And so the authority always has to rest ultimately with the person who is present in whatever situation is being addressed. Wow, that's great. Just real quick, I mean, the parallels to 
all of the things that you have to learn in law school there are just so um, kind of direct. <laughs> yeah, whoever was closer to the Constitution. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's very much like originalism, yeah. whatever. Anyway, yeah, no, go ahead, Pete. And then I have some like really dumb basic yeah, questions. Yeah, no, so I have my dumb guy question. And for my fellow dumb guys in the audience, I'm here to represent. What does it mean that it's queer Talmud? Oh, great question. You know, the dumb guy thing would be like, does this mean there's queer people in the Talmud? But um, I know there's a deeper academic concept of queer theory and queering the world, but I have no idea how to describe it, but I, I'm sure you can. So could you give us the summary of what that is? Yeah, there's there's sort of a couple valences that the term queer is operating on. One, in just a historical sense, there is this sort of specific pedagogy and movement that started with this organization, Sfara, that sort of was the genesis of queer Talmud. And they have their own sort of sense of queer. They think of queer as having sort of two main possible definitions, one being the sort of classic definition, someone who's LGBT or, you know, something in that sort of sphere. The other is someone who is sort of a spiritual kin to type one queer, someone who is existing on the outside of our society, of our tradition, who takes a naturally sort of antinomian approach to all of it. And so for them, it is about... For, for Sfara, it's always been about creating a pedagogy and an approach to Talmud that centers the margins and everything else sort of flows out from that sense of queer. And I think part of the reason that it became queer Talmud rather than anything else is just because the queer community has this, has always had a very particular antinomian sentiment about it towards all kinds of institutions and that flavors our approach to other things. I mean, this is very essentializing of the queer community, but I think you all know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. That's the basic answer is that it is about what I would say is the essence of queerness, which is, uh, you know, unnameable in a certain sense, but trying to bring that essence to the center of a Talmudic pedagogy is what queer Talmud is. And to get a little concrete about that, is that kind of if you find an area where you could make a choice that is like, do we do we look at this advice or this rule of thumb or this historic moment from the perspective of the powerful or from the perspective of the, well, not powerful, from the centered uh, establishment or the perspective of the margins, you, you choose the latter? Is that is that how it would practically arise? Yeah, I think that's one element of it. I think this sort of gets back to what characterizes Talmudic pedagogy in particular as relational. You know, what makes queer Talmud queer Talmud is how it affects the spaces in which the pedagogy happens rather than the material itself. Because Talmud is not fundamentally about the material, it's about the relationships between the learners. And so how we organize our spaces is sort of where that shines through most clearly. That is a very profound idea that's completely counter to the idea that the goal is there's a database of information inside of this 2100-page book, and I need to get that database in my head, to I am enmeshing myself in a network that of relationships. That's really, that's very, very profound. 
Right. And it, and you can really feel it as, when you go on your journey through the years of being a queer Talmud learner, you know, in a lot of spaces, as you learn more, you sort of achieve a higher status in an educational environment, right? But the queer Talmud environment tends to be focused on bringing in the insights of the people who are most on the edge, which in this case would be the people who know the least so far, wow. right? And so I found... I mean, this uh, became more complicated when I became a teacher, but in classes now, the more I know, the less I speak. And that's a really opposite way of showing up than in most other pedagogical environments I've been in. There's this Ezra Klein speech that he never gave, but he's talked about the speech that he wrote. And then I think it was canceled because of COVID. It was like his first graduation speech he got, you know, selected for. And he, he called it Do the Reading. That was the title of it. And what he meant by it was literally read the book, like don't read summaries of the book. And what he meant is that the experience of a book is the reading of the book and the conversation you have in your head with the people, with the author that had written the book. And it feels on some abstract level, a similar spirit to this, which is like the experience itself of learning the the Talmud in this way is the learning of the Talmud. It's not the, you know, and thus it's, it, it, the whole thing is the process. Another one that reminds me of this, I'm, I'm using all Jewish examples, so maybe it's in the air. Jerry Seinfeld once said, going to a, the movie is part of the movie, which he meant, you know, the part of seeing Top Gun Maverick is driving to the theater, getting the popcorn, sitting down, talking about it on the way home. You can't just have a, microchip tell you now you know top gun maverick and and i'm i'm just sensing so much from everything you're saying it's like going to this queer talmud camp the the conversations at the meals i i just feel like that must all be part of it am i am i crazy in saying all that? yeah i mean what you're talking about is is something that has often been referred to as the essential versus the enhanced talmud the essential talmud is w what we mean when we say like this set of books on this shelf is the Talmud. The enhanced Talmud, depending on your point of view, could encompass any number of things like those phenomenons that you're talking about. In, in the queer Talmud world, the enhanced Talmud doesn't really come into existence until the text enters your body and is sort of catalyzed by your own experiences and insights. And sort of without that learner text learner learner interaction there is no talmud you only have the essential talmud which is you know sorely lacking this also just calls back pete to our conversation with Derek gottlieb about what schools are and should be in his view right which was the school is in addition to being the place where you learn the things that you learn and the people who are there the thing that you have to drive slow past and like the place where there's a playground that maybe you can use on the weekends or what, you know, all every single element of its role in society, which of course is very much not how people think of school now, but it just, it's has some resonance with what, what you guys are saying. Yeah, absolutely. So here, here are my dumb guy questions. So you said at the beginning, right? Like Talmud is like this series of writings between like zero and three to 600 CE. Mm -hmm. yeah. How did stuff get to be to, like, how did how is something Talmud versus something that was written during the same time or shortly after not Talmud? Sure. So there was a canonization process. There were sort of two primary steps of this process. The Mishnah, which is sort of the earliest historical layer of the Talmud, was canonized around 200 CE. 
And then the rest of the Talmud, which we call the Gemara, was canonized around 500 CE. And then some other stuff got slipped in after that. But the composition process during that period, there's some debate about how much the written word was really involved. But the majority of the composition process was oral, was through repetition from learner from learner, from school to school. And as time went on, what had been canonized as the Mishnah and as the Gemara was written down. And then it really, really got standardized uh, when the, the Vilna Shas was printed, which is the sort of printed edition of the Talmud that many people use today that was uh, put out in 1834. And so that was... In a lot of ways, although it seems late, was a really big deal for the canonization of the Talmud because it became this universal printed edition that we all use today. But mm-hmm. over that whole time, there was sort of this nucleus of the Mishnah and the Gemara that had been settled since basically 500 that we were all, everyone was studying. And there's other Talmuds and there's other statements from the same system that did not become Talmud. So there's What we all mostly study is called the Babylonian Talmud. There's also a similar but different Talmud called the Yerushalmi Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, which is interesting in its own right, but not studied to the same degree. And then there's all kinds of statements of rabbis from the same era that didn't get canonized, which we call Tosvot. And they are just sort of in their own collections. So... A lot of different things. Yeah. So, I mean, even though it is, even though it is sort of a total canon with, with the power of, of religion and God in existence behind it, it, it was still, I mean, somebody had to decide <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even in the most sort of conservative viewpoint, one of the main differences between Talmud and the Bible is that Talmud is sort of vulnerable to literary criticism and sort of like textual historical analysis in a way that the Torah is not meant to be if you're coming from that extreme religious viewpoint because there's sort of no avoiding the humanness of it. So it's considered to be sort of divinely guided, but not unquestionably essential in the same way as Torah. Okay, so then the same question, but about the commentary, right? Because you said that each page is like Talmud and commentary, commentary, commentary. Right. How, how right. do you get to be one of the people who has published commentary? So this is actually a, a just like a super cool phenomenon. You'll have to look up a page of Talmud if you haven't seen one before, but it has this incredible structure with the, the Talmud itself in the middle and then this incredibly unique typesetting with other stuff going on all around it. And the way it actually happened is, for instance, someone like Rashi, who's one of the primary commentators on the Talmud, he wrote his thing and all the Talmud students, you know, throughout the land would have his book with them. And it became so popular that they would have it written in their margins. And eventually those margins, those notes that people took in the margins of Rashi's comments just became so common that they were canonized and printed in later editions of the Talmud. It's like having a a reference guide, you know, like uh, like having footnotes, basically, that they don't have the same canonicity of the text, but they have become so essential to the understanding of the text that if you want to have the maximally helpful edition of whatever you're reading, you want to have the footnotes in it. Right. So, like, that seems like a sort of emergent way for... Absolutely. For Rashi's commentary specifically to become... Is that how all of the commentary makes its way in. Yeah. Rashi's not and the only commenter in there, in right? That way. Yeah. Yeah. 
it all makes its way in through this emergent process of sort of people having the practice of writing commentary into their Talmud. And you can actually, the way Talmud is printed, what is considered the most important commentary is always on the inside edge so that it gets the minimal wear from the usage of the book. So that's sort of like a leftover uh, symbol of, of how this originally was was done. That's so medium specific, though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Say more about what you mean. You know, that's a very different way to get canonized, but also something very specific to like having books that you are physical books that you are reading and writing in and that are being copied in a particular yeah. way. Yeah. It feels like once you change the mechanism for reading and commenting on copying even books like that, that no longer works the same way. Right. Which is maybe a great explanation for why we haven't added another ring of text since then, you know. You always hear these folks talking about, you know, with poetry or with, you know, the Odyssey or something, you have to read it in the original. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I wonder if you have any takes on people who want to just get an English version of the Talmud and then uh, read it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think I am generally friendlier than two translations than most of my ilk. But I would say that reading the Talmud in translation is an incredibly impoverished experience of the text. Part of that has to do with Hebrew and Aramaic as languages themselves. Every Hebrew word, the cloud of meanings that it is attached to is, is much wider than the cloud of meanings attached to an English word. And so the Talmud, by nature, even though it's sort of doing this exacting sort of scientific legal process, it is in a language that is sort of counteractive to that goal. And so one of the reasons that we study it in the original and, and why we emphasize that so much is because developing your own translation is such a deeper relationship with the text than a translation, and also because once you become accustomed to translating it, you'll realize how ideological the translations you're reading are, and your own translation is. All translations are ideological, but if you read translation, you miss that. There's no way for you to catch the ideology of the translator because you don't have the tools to detect the sort of variance. I have a pedagogical question on this. So one of my favorite, uh, I guess it's pedagogues, would that be right, Sparky? One of my favorite pedagogues, um, and we're hoping to have her on the show as well, is Eleanor Duckworth. And she invented this pedagogy idea called critical exploring. And what she says about teachers is that too often they make themselves the subject matter of which students explore. So it's like the teacher has all this information and the students will ask a bunch of questions of the teacher and they explore the teacher mm -hmm. by asking him or her questions and then they give answers. And it's like, look at the teacher, look at the teacher, look at the teacher. What she says is you need to separate. Your first task is to separate the subject matter from the teacher and direct the students to critically, cri critically explore <laughs> the subject matter. Um, like you need to say, oh, here, if you want to learn about history, we need to like read a poem from the time. Or if you want to learn about the moon, don't ask the teacher questions about the moon, H have them look at the moon. And then the first step is to have the student critically explore the subject matter. And then the second step is to have the teacher critically explore the ideas that the students are having to help coach them in maybe fruitful 
nudges in different explorations. As I've been hearing you talk about this, it's so interesting that there's such a clear subject matter in the type of pedagogy you're talking about. There is like a thing everyone is coming together to explore together and people a hundred years, a thousand years ago did it, a thousand years from now hopefully will. And I'd be interested in that second part where like how does the teacher coach you in your exploration or do you ask question like what happens when you ask a question to, when your students ask a question to you or do you direct them back to the subject matter do you just give your thoughts on it like what is the uh, you know what does that bring up in you when I kind of explain uh, uh, t talk about that kind of theory of critical exploration yeah the reason I laughed is just because I I just don't Probably because of my own approach, I don't believe that the separation of the teacher from the subject matter is really That's possible. Great. Okay, let's hear about that. <laughs> but in, in Queer Talmud world, we say sort of your ideal teaching is just making your own learning process transparent to the learners. So rather than existing as a repository of information, you are meant to be sort of modeling the process yourself. There's a big emphasis on being open to not knowing in front of everybody, which is an incredibly emotional high wire act to walk as someone who gets up and teaches this a lot. So what it looks like is usually after we all come, we've all studied with our partners and sort of developed our own translations. We all come back together in Shior, the lecture portion of the class. We pick someone to read the text, meaning given, giving us their best guess of the pronunciation and the translation. And we sort of, notate that in a way that everyone can experience it together and so you can sort of see already what this student is doing is what hopefully the teacher is doing which is making their learning transparent to the classroom right they're sort of unveiling their learning process for everyone to see and questions naturally come up through that and god willing if we get through that process then there's there's usually enough sort of free-flowing discussion at the end to sort of cover any anything thematic or subject matter wise. So yeah, it's a it's a very different model from from most pedagogical models and it's very focused on sort of a shared experience of, of the learning process of Talmud rather than a, a hierarchical arrangement between teacher and learner. How much of that non hierarchy is specific to like queer Talmud as opposed to like Orthodox Talmud. I would say like 99 to 100%. <laughs> 99 to 100%, which, you know, I can only speak to what I know. In the uh, in more traditional Talmud settings, uh, the few of them that I have experienced, what's more often happening is chevrutas are studying at their own pace with each other, and someone, usually the teacher, is at the center of the room sort of keeping track of where we all are supposed to be on the page. And every so often, someone will go to that person with a question. So it's very—it's even less structured, but more hierarchical. I see. Yeah. Let me just throw a comparison at you and see what your reaction is. Please do. The thing, particularly about the Heruta, like, the thing that this conversation is reminding me most of, in terms of all of the conversations we've had in this series so far, mm -hmm. is our conversation with Sam from Southpaw Podcast, which was about martial arts. Mm -hmm. And specifically about Brazilian jiu-jitsu and like even the structure that you're describing is almost exactly like the structure of a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. This explains why um, I like Brazilian jiu-jitsu so much. Do you? Yeah. Do you practice? Yeah, I don't practice anymore, especially since the pandemic, but it used to be a big pastime of mine. 
All right. So just like what what's <laughs> Sparky is <laughs> Give not me your take um, on this. Sparky is not bragging, but Sparky is uh, a fellow I'm, Brazilian uh, jiu-jitsu uh, <laughs> craftsman. All, also, also like, you know, basically the pandemic really made that much more difficult. But, you know, yeah. So I, I guess I won't do any more explaining of what I think about what's going on. Here. Like what what's going on here? <laughs> what's going on here? Hava? In the similarities. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, part of what ha- always attracted me to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, I hadn't gone to many martial arts classes before I went to my first BJJ class, but what attracted me in the BJJ classes I've been a part of is that you have this very similar opportunity of you're presented with a subject matter, in my experience, usually a specific technique, a specific hold or idea, and then you're sort of sent off with your sparring partner to just go struggle with that on your own, like an incredibly similar dynamic. I I don't think there's been any uh, explicit like uh, intermixture of the two worlds must just be parallel evolution. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's what I was so attracted to about jujitsu. And there's also this similar um, energy that the more experienced BJJ student you become sort of the less, centered you become in the whole experience you're a better sparring partner if you're helping your partner learn the technique not if you're showing off what a cool guy you are right exactly and, and it's kind of uh, you know similar to the more you know the less you say it's it's like yeah you i mean you're reacting as opposed to acting in a way that becomes more helpful than yeah right anyway uh, that <laughs> well, just like a little bit over the moon that like you both thought it was a good analogy and also you <laughs> could relate to it <laughs> because I think that there's also you know there's it it, it it kind of carries through on a number of levels and this is kind of this was one of the motivating thoughts behind the series too is that they're actually looking outside the current context and institutions that we think of in terms of education. Like there are these, all these parallels in the alternatives, both, you know, kind of historical and and kind of current alternatives. And and I remember, you know, this thought kind of first occurred to me when I first interviewed Sam for current affairs podcast at the same time that I was like reading some books about Sufism and, and, you know, you can kind of see like, Oh, this pedigree of instructors going back to the original is like, very important and you have these different schools that form and there's also i don't think that you were part of this podcast but i think michael did a series uh at least one episode maybe a couple episodes about hasidism oh yeah i was a part of the series but there was one episode i wasn't on where he entered he okay. talked with sam yeah which which obviously you know there's kind of i don't know there there seem to be parallels there that it's almost like it makes me suspicious that we are missing something essential in how we think about education now in that we don't have this sort of like social aspect study partner, not necessarily like the high, I mean, obviously there's like a lot of hierarchy there that (laughs) I don't think is necessarily like something that we need, but you know, in that all of these different examples across contexts and history have things in common that, that we've kind of decided are maybe not necessary. It feels like that is a clue to what might be missing. Yeah, I mean, the the sort of uh, boring structuralist answer to me is like the profit motive has 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 wrecked our education system. You know, the the in the ideal Brazilian jiu jitsu setting, the goal of Brazilian jiu jitsu is Brazilian jiu jitsu. 
And the goal of Talmud can be stated in a lot of different ways, but it's either to make us better people or for its own sake. And to me, I think it's the objective of the learning process that has sort of thrown everything off track. And you can't really solve that without solving the world's larger problems. You you don't study Talmud to improve your human capital in order to earn more in the labor market. Is that what you're saying? I, if I did, I would be I would be doing it very poorly. <laughs> Rise and grind. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is a nice segue to this question, which is, how has it, even if this wasn't your intention, you know, of uh, functional purposes, how has it changed your life to to dive deep in? You know, this is a podcast where we dive deep into rabbit holes and let a question overtake us and you've done that in such a big way with such a significant um, work how has it changed your life uh, how has it changed my life uh, you know at the beginning of my journey studying Talmud I had a conversation with a very dear friend of mine where I was sort of bemoaning to him the fact that I felt like I had lost my ability to believe in things I know you know growing up I grew up in an evangelical household with a really strong family structure. And so, of course, I like believed in that. And it is obvious to me looking around that belief in higher concepts gives people like such an incredible amount of, of strength and energy. And I just felt like that faculty had completely atrophied through my through my young adult years. And in studying Talmud, I feel like I've been able to slowly recultivate that not even necessarily towards a belief in God or, or ultimate scriptural authority, but just like being immersed in that relational context of people really focused on learning for its own sake, like with the goal of ideally bettering the world has just sort of like to say most easily, like literally restored my faith in humanity. <laughs> So I would say I've been pretty pretty radically transformed over the years. You know, there are a lot of aspects of Judaism and of spirituality that I feel like I've sort of started by trying on and just seeing, like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to practice Shabbat? What does it feel like to act as if there is a God? And in acting as if those things are true, they've sort of, like, slowly revealed their truths to me. William James' will to believe drop uh, could happen here. <laughs> um, yes, keep going. Sorry. Um, yeah, and so that that has sort of been the the process with Talmud is it's just sort of put me back in touch with the the some sort of fundamental and important truths about the universe. So you know, just whatever, no big deal, <laughs> no biggie. Well, so here here you are now, Hava, and you've been failed by school education, institutional education as as we have it. It's at true. Least part of the way through. And then you've found a much greater sense of meaning and fulfillment in a in some ways radically different, but in other ways not, mm-hmm. alternative pedagogical and educational system. So if you could be master of the universe here and totally restructure what education looks like more broadly. Um, you know, right now, here, mm-hmm. how would it look for you? What's the ideal? What What should we be learning, and how? How about that? <laughs> that is a, an incredibly broad question. That's pretty hard to deal with. 
I think, I mean, in a lot of cases, I think I would replicate something like Talmudic, queer Talmudic pedagogy, like especially in, in humanities fields. I think similar models could be adapted like incredibly easily. And I have always been a uh, complete rube when it comes to hard sciences or anything remotely on that side of the brain. So it's hard for me to imagine the pedagogical side of that world because I feel like I've really never even experienced it for myself. So it's hard to make any claims about what I would want to happen there. But well, well let's let's set aside the let's set aside the high level stuff like, you know, fifth grade. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I recognize this is an yeah, annoyingly it's an, hard question, but also I'm very curious question. just to see how you think about it. It's an incredibly hard question. I mean, I think I would focus most on the material that is like about the human experience, which to me as a kid was always like history and books, like stories. I actually, I was homeschooled a bunch of a mixture of years growing up and we had this curriculum where whatever we're studying in history our literature component was like of the same time period and like of the same geographic location and just having that sort of experience of like acquiring information about a place and also reading a book that could put me in the shoes of a person of that place I think was was really formative for me and that's the thing that I would want to replicate that I really didn't get outside of homeschool, which was like the ability to explore the human experience without sort of being focused on grades. Okay, so so no grades. <laughs> <laughs> are are, are, are chose, the kids going to be in Harutas? I chose grades because they feel like the most sort of like uh, achievement focused part of our learning system today and achievement is really like a, a concept in learning that I struggle with or achievement as sort of like adjudicated by a force outside oneself but at mm -hmm. like queer Talmud camp how do you get people to even do the work if you can't threaten them with grades right and how does anyone know you're the coolest and smartest in the class if you don't get the highest grade which is very important on this t on this question of what it human existence, what does it mean? You know, oh. I'd love to hear Sparky. Yeah, that did question. You, I got none of that in school either. Like, there's no anything getting close. There's not even like baby philosophy when I was growing up in school. Um, did you have that, Sparky? No, no, and I, and I think like, I mean, I I've said before that part of what actually made me interested in school or learning at all, like you know, I essentially dropped out of high school and it wasn't until going to college and going to college in such a way where there was I had no expectation had no like goal <laughs> like I was I was just going to college on the side of my full-time job which is what I thought I was going to be doing forever like that was the freedom that allowed it to be interesting to me and at the same time you know that was also the circumstance in which you you know, start to have people trust you to wrestle yourself with some of these questions and you start to have more meaningful relationships within the context of education as opposed to just like at school with people, like learn with people for the first time. Like all of that is what is what basically, you know, turned me on and convinced me that I needed to actually go back to school. And then slowly that was chipped away at as I started to have goals and <laughs> have to worry about grades and all that bullshit. Right. Um, but no, 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 none of that. Philo no philosophy. No, you know, 
logic or reasoning or meaning or anything. No, no, no. I had one really incredible teacher who managed to embody that even within a system govern- governed by grades. The one who most embodied it for me, who taught he taught my world history in my AP Euro history class in high school. And the format was like entirely lecture and discussion and minimal homework, just tests as necessary for like structural reasons. That man, genius. That's all I have to say about him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is wonderful. You know, we love on this series asking people, you know, how come we don't extract principles from our favorite teachers? Because it's like, you, you know, Alfie Cohn, the education theorist, has this wonderful thing where he says, what do you, you know, he goes to groups of parents and he goes, what do you want for your schools, for your kids? And they list all these things like rigorous curriculum, you know, competitive for top colleges, preparing them to work. And then he has, who were your favorite teachers and what was your favorite quality about them? And it's always, you know, it's always the stuff where you're talking about. It's always collaborative, respectful of me as a thinker as well, you know, got me curious and excited about things, you know, broke the rules. And it's like, why don't we ever institutionalize that ever? Yeah, I think it's because so many of us are so unhappy. (laughs) We think if I'm this unhappy, it must be because I didn't achieve enough. Because if I had more, I would be more happy. So I want my kid to have more than I have now and not have that hippy-dippy bullshit that set me up to be the failure I am today. <laughs> Self-hatred, that's the answer. Well, you know, I would I would go to I would go to the Hava school. I would. <laughs> I'm honored. I mean, you do once or twice a week to the podcast. <laughs> once or twice a week. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, thank you so much Hava for joining us and I would I would Im- encourage implore everybody to please go check out Hi How Are You? It is an awesome podcast. We will link it in the notes. And it it really brings me a lot of joy to listen to. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you, listeners. Tune in next time as we go deeper down the rabbit hole. Rabbit Hole Podcast is produced by Dan Thorne. Theme music is by Danny Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode of Rabbit Hole, please, please support us at patreon.com slash rabbit hole podcast. Help us keep all of our episodes open to everyone. We can't do it without you. If you didn't enjoy this episode of Rabbit Hole, try another episode. Maybe we had an off day. <laughs>